I had toyed with the idea of finishing the book. That would have been five chapters today um, in this one session. We're not going to do that. Um, and I also, I'm just going to tell you, I toyed with the idea of doing chapter 25 after 26 and 27. But I think we'll just take them in the order that they're in. And we'll kind of let the cards fall where they may. But I anticipate some questions about this first chapter. And we'll see how far we get as we begin with David's administration and the music of the temple in particular here in 1 Chronicles 25. I'm not going to read every verse of any of these three chapters. I'm going to read several verses, but some of them are long lists of names. Um, Eileen, you were looking at that before class started. Did you count all the names? Yeah, I didn't either. Um, but a lot, a lot of names. We'll look at some of them, though. Um, so, chapter 25 begins, In addition, David and the officers of the army set apart for service certain of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. I'm going to stop. Can we look at that? Why would the officers of the army be setting up the musicians for the temple worship? And that's a, that's a curious phrase, isn't it? Um, the, uh, the, the People's Bible, uh, that's Professor Wendland, I, I, former President Wendland of, the, of our seminary, looks into this. Um, and I just want to just point out that this uh, phrase, you can see the Hebrew there, it's pronounced vasare hatsava. Um, and it's really the princes or the officials or officers or something of the tsava, which is the host, um, can be the army. And the evangelical heritage version likes to take tsava or tsava oath and leave it as army. For example, in the title of God, the Lord of armies, uh, uh, rather than sovereign Lord or oh, however the NIV handles it. But this could also be commanders or leaders of the host, which would be the what uh, head musicians, uh, the chief uh, singers or, or whatever it is. Um, either way, is it possible that there could have been some army officers who were really good at music though? Sure, could have been, so I'll just leave it. Um, but I thought I would comment on it at least so you've got an idea of what's going on here. So uh, certain of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, there's a trio of guys we've met before, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. This is the list of the men set apart for this work of service. So how do you prophesy with a lyre, harp, or cymbals? You make music. Yeah, here we have the, the word prophesy in its sense of to proclaim the word of God, right? Do we proclaim the word of God with music today? Yeah, with all of our music and liturgy in worship. We do it different ways, right? Sometimes I can't think of the end of a passage unless I sing it. You have that happen sometimes? I can probably get through the 23rd Psalm easier if I do the tune um, than if I just try to do the words, although I do recite it at every funeral, and sometimes I don't look down. Um, although there's a danger, but, it, but it's easier. But even in Hebrew, Adonai ro'i lo exar, it flows better if you sing it 
um, uh, occasionally, and there are different ways of doing this. So from the sons of Asaph, uh, Jacker, Joseph, Nethaniah, and, um, um, and Azarela, two sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph who prophesied at the order of the king. Come here and prophesy for me. That's the king saying, come here and share God's word with me musically. And probably David had written it. You know, the, the tune of that psalm or whatever. From Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun were Gedaliah, Zeri, Jeshiah, Shemai, Hashabiah, and Matithia. Am I saying that right? Mattathiah, probably. Six, under the direction of their father, Jeduthun, who prophesied, and here we have, by giving thanks and praising the Lord with the lyre. I think I probably should have capitalized Lord there, but prophesied by giving thanks and praising the Lord with the lyre. So two different forms of music there, prophecy and, and, uh, and or rather thanks and praise, different ways of, of doing a hymn. Um, from Heman, oh, I, I, you know, I read a lot of these myself. Would anybody like me to hand off verse four for you to read? I just, I, I don't want to be selfish about this, but okay. So, so from Heman, the sons of Heman were Bukiah, Mataniah, Uziel, Shebuel, Jeremoth, Hananiah, Hanani, Eliatha, uh, Gedalti, Romamti, Ezer, Joshbekasha, Malothi, Hothir, and Mahaziath. I believe the faster you go, the easier it is. Um, all these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer. All of them were the sons of the one guy. That's 14 kids, 14 sons. Um, the king, to fulfill the promise of God to exalt him, God gave to Heman 14 sons and three daughters. Um, other musical families that you can think of in the history of music? Oh, either the correct order, Beth, thank you. The Osmonds. Another one? The Jacksons, very good. There's the Jackson Five plus others. Um, what one? The Lennon, the Lennon sisters. My mother had those those albums as a kid. I uh, I could have gone. I I went to to Bach actually in my head. This is uh, this is four of the how many were there? Seven, not counting P.D.Q. Bach, who is a, a mythical. Um, I don't know if anybody knows about P.D.Q. Bach, and there, there's a there's a professor I forget his name from North Dakota State I think who has this whole line of comedy musical things by P.D.Q. Bach. It's not really you know anyway um, the 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 names of Heman's sons if you translate them they form a sentence a prayer. So Hananiah, have mercy, O Lord. Hanani, have mercy. Eliatha, you are my God. Gedalti, whom I magnify these. I make him Gadol. I Gedalti him. Um, Romamti, and I exalt him. Ezer, Joshbekasha, my helper in difficulty. Malotti, he has endowed thee, me. Um, Hothir, by an abundance. Mahaziot, of visions, of prophetic visions. Pretty cool stuff, isn't it? By the way, this, the, I, I um, take no credit for this. This is also Professor Wendland's translation from the People's Bible on 
First Chronicles. I'm wondering if First Chronicles is the least visited people's Bible in the, in the set, um, but a marvelous, marvelous people's Bible. When it came out, I was delighted that it was two volumes. Our, the, the Samuel and the Kings, with respect to their authors, are shorter, each of them, than either of the volumes of First and Second Chronicles. And sometimes there's more to be said. Um, although there are restrictions when you work for a publishing company or a publishing house, you know, keep it under 230 pages or whatever, you know. But um, when, you, when you don't work with a publishing house, you can make your commentary as long as you want to. Um, all of these were under the direction of their father, to make music in the Lord's house with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of God's house. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the direction of the king. This neatly wraps it up by saying the same thing over again um, at the end, bookending, as we sometimes see in scripture. The number of them with their brothers who were instructed in singing to the Lord, all of them were skillful, was 288. Um, that's a lot of musicians. We couldn't get them all in the choir loft, could we? How big is our choir when it's got all of its folks on Easter? About 30? In including the, the, the instrumentalists? Maybe? 20 plus 10, something like that. They, now, here, they, they, they get them all together, and then, after they've selected those who are capable of service, they cast lots for who goes when, or doing what. Um, so student or teacher, they cast lots for their offices all alike, the least as well as the greatest, the teacher as well as the student. We'll let the Lord decide who does what and when. Um, I wanted to make this a nice scrolling thing that would just go up uh, with this long list and I couldn't get it to go the direction I wanted it to. So there's the, down to verse 31, who got chosen, which guy and his sons and brothers, um, 12 in each group, 24 groups, a lot of musicians. Um, so you, you, you sing it, you're, you, you, you prep your music, you're ready to go, your week comes, your two weeks come, and then you sing. Sing, sing, sing your heart out. Oh, let, we're going to talk about that with these next questions because we're going to apply all of this, not only to us, but think of the remnant coming back from Babylon and what do we have left? You know, and it, is, it, is it, so let, let's begin with this one though. What, why is the gift of prophecy, proclaiming God's word, so closely linked to the temple musicians? Right. This is how they learned the word of God. Um, when you learn to read Hebrew, there are two sets of accent marks. One is when you're reading prose, like the book of First Chronicles, for example. There's one set of accents. You, you, you look for the middle of the verse where the atnach is and the middle of the middle of the verse where the, where the, the, the zakef Katon is, which I call the parish pastor's pal, and then and you find out where the quarter marks are in your verse, then you can do your grammar and so forth and figure out the verse. When you're doing music, it's, it, everything changes. And you've got to look for this special dot slash thing called Ola Yorid, 
and you're looking around, and then the accents also appear to mean they're uh, they're 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 chanting cantillation marks. How do we sing this music? And a woman, I have it in my laptop. I don't have it keyed up for you, but a woman in the '60s named Suzanne Hike Ventura. She was a French musicologist and Hebraist. Um, uh, did some research, uh, went back as far as she possibly could in time. I don't think she got all the way back to the temple, but she went back as far as she could in time to figure out the different ways that the cantillation marks marked Hebrew music in scripture. So how is this sung? Um, and there was a guy, was it Paul Roach? who came up with his own way of, of doing it also. And you can sometimes Google a song uh, called Tehillim, an album called Tehillim, which is the Hebrew word for Psalms. And you get these marvelous, um, just otherworldly, angelic pieces of music that transcends. And then you get somebody like Suzanne Hike Ventura, who it's more kind of plain songy, like, oh, I don't know if that really helps me all that much. So it depends on which version you, you, you look at, but um, it can be quite gorgeous in the way that the music is sung. And when we hear something in a melody, we store it more easily because we're using more of the senses to where is it in my, in my head. Um, when my, uh, uh, when, sometimes when somebody is confirmed, you might have a particularly uh, uh, crafty, I don't mean that that way, uncle or somebody who's able to do like woodworking and may, may, may actually give a routered version of their confirmation verse. Uh, please use the translation that's being used in the kids' church and don't say, well, this is only valid if it's the King James or something like that. But fun. Mm -hmm. I figure the hymnal that's coming here soon is in my head, I'm calling it the third of the four yes. that I will encounter in my, in my life as a Christian. You know, something along those lines. Um, uh, I would, uh, right now up on the top of the stairs, I have a little display of the, of the, I guess you could say the three Bibles that have been used here at St. Paul's over the years. They're all open to Psalm 1. Um, if I can find all of them, I could do it with the five English hymnals and go back one and include the German hymnal that was used here for a long time at St. Paul's. Um, and I don't know that two of the five English ones ever got used at St. Paul's because we were doing German so long here. But I think that this congregation skipped the first two NPH English hymnals that, that therefore maybe the 41 hymnal which most of us here would think of as the old hymnal, was the first English one that St. Paul's ever used, but the third one that the Synod had put out. It is, it is, it is, it is really hard as a liturgist to, to go back. Uh, for one thing, I'm 57. I never used the 1941 hymnal as a liturgist professionally. I never did. We changed before I got out. You know, um, so I never, so, and because the liturgy is different in every congregation, are, are we all aware that the liturgy is the hardest part of leading worship 
that preaching is the, by far the easiest and doing the liturgy is the hardest. Um, you'd, you'd think, well, aren't you just reading it? Well, okay, but every congregation does the liturgy differently than is actually printed. Um, where do we put the closing hymn in this congregation? It's not what's in the hymnal. We don't, we don't follow the hymnal there. You know, and, and almost no congregation does. They have their own idiosyncrasies. And what do they do here? What do they say there? Do they do this? Do they do that? Um, and, uh, and the congregation gets used to it. The preacher get, gets used to it. And pretty soon they're their own, their own entity. And then a guest comes in. And I'm, I, I, wouldn't it be wonderful if Pastor Ailhoffen got here just as all of us are moving into a different liturgy and we can kind of get to know it together. That's not exactly what's going to happen, but wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Because um, he's going to have to learn how we do things and then a couple months later we're all going to switch. And, you know, so that's what's going to happen. Um, I got a couple more questions, though. We're going to keep going here. So what, what comfort would this chapter give to the returning exiles and their small little choirs and little instrumental groups compared with David's huge choirs and rotating schedule of 288 musicians. You know, they're, they're asking, are we still the people of God? And what is Ezra, or whoever wrote Chronicles, what is he saying to those people as they're returning? Is he saying you should feel bad about what you've got? No, he's... Well, for one thing, what should we do with regard to our music? We should strive for excellence, right? Well, what if, I don't know if you, if you would believe this, I don't quite have the range musically in my own voice box that I did when I was 17. Um, in my high school choir, I was an Irish tenor which meant that I could get up well into the alto range, into the bottom of the soprano range, and the choir would ooh or hmm while I sang Danny Boy or something at, in, in concerts when I was in high school. Um, I remember uh, singing things like Obey the Spirit of the Lord. This is a public high school. And the girls are yelling, Alleluia, in the background of... Uh, during a concert, you know, and things like that. We sang all of Handel's Messiah on a three-year rotating schedule in my public high school. I sang all of the tenor and soprano solos in, in the tenor range, most of the bass solos and some of the alto solos in concert in high school, myself, um, in, in doing, doing all of the Messiah like that. It was... It was Wonderful to go through that and to know it and to learn it and so forth. They've asked me to come back for because they, they still do it and they always allow old choir alumni to go back and join them. And I've been here 20, I've never been able to go back. For one thing, they should really ask me more than two weeks in advance. You know, I just never, I can never get there. But, um, went backwards there. Let's. What comfort does this chapter give to the members of church choirs? We use the gifts that we have, right? Um, we happen to be blessed with um, some artists who produce some wonderful 
um, banners for our congregation. Um, but I have guests preached at some old churches where it's still burlap and felt glued, not exactly in the right, you know, all in, all in line. And is, is there anything wrong with either one of those? No, no. How would this chapter help to guide a church council concerned with the budget when a request for, comes from the choir for more choir music and we're struggling to pay the light bill? Do we need new choir music? Well, what happens if we don't get new choir music? What do the, what do the people in the pews hear? They've been singing this for 40 years and I, I didn't like it the first year and I still don't like it today. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said for, for, for bringing in new music of all kinds. But for choir, it's bad. A choir, now, what if a choir has a number it does extremely well? Then is it, is it wrong to bring that in? It's also not wrong to rotate that out one year. But it's okay to bring it in often enough. You know. my, my mother was very fond of a brand new piece in, that came out in 78 or 79 called The First Song of Isaiah. Surely it is God who saves me. We use the refrain in our hymnal, in the hymns, in, a, in the Psalms of our hymns. Um, she loved it. We sang it at her funeral, but that was August or September of 79. It had just come out, but she was so in love with it that we, the, that we, we sang it. And what do I do every time I hear that refrain or that hymn still today? I think of my mom, which is a wonderful little perk. You know, I mean, there, there are other things. There, there's, there's one hymn I can't get through without crying because of the same funeral. Um, uh, oh, just be still my soul. The, the wind and waves still know, you know, that verse. Um, I usually have to stop singing for a minute. That's okay. That's okay. How does this chapter encourage a small choir that sometimes gets some notes wrong or struggles with the tempo? We kind of covered that, but... We are called to proclaim the word of God to one another and using music is one of the ways we do it with excellence. Also, for an illiterate congregation, stained glass, right? Banners, yeah. As a high schooler, I loved it when for just one year, because it was I couldn't join the choir until I was confirmed in my church. So for just one year, all five of us in my family sang in the choir together. You know, and it was, and so we had a soprano and alto, uh, two tenors and a bass, all in choir at the same time. And it was wonderful. It was also always fun in my family sitting in the pew because my brother and sister and I would chase each other around the parts. So my brother, we, we started a hymn and my brother would sing the tenor line, then he would jump and I would sing the tenor line the next verse and he would be singing the alto line and my sister would sing the bass line and we would follow each other around. And if we caught each other on the same voice, you know, it was kind of a game, but you would, you would jump off it then, you know, you, 
it was, it was like, no, you can't be on the same voice. You, see, you know, we, we have to harmonize, but not at the same time. You know, but it, was, uh, it, it taught you to, to get around the harmonics of every hymn, you know, in my little, in my little family. But, right. Mm-hmm. I, I was really impressed. And my congregation back in Wisconsin got a staff minister as early as, I think, 76. Must have been one of the first staff ministers in the whole synod. Um, and he came in to become our choir director and also directed the children uh, for some things, the upper grade children. And, and, we had, and he would call it kind of, kind of behind the scenes, but, but I had a classmate who he called a Johnny One Note like that. But, he, but when he would talk about him, he would say, but man, that note is right in the Lord's ear. You know, Jesus loves that one note. What are the advantages and disadvantages of using more than one style of music in worship? First of all, is there a disadvantage of using more than one style? Well, I'm going to suggest that depending on the style, there might be one, if, if, if it's one song that's like a featured thing, you know, what if we had four kids who loved the banjo? You know, would we want them playing for every single hymn? Well, if I had no other music, I might. But could they play once in a while one song in worship and we would have this little banjo choir and maybe somebody with a moonshine jug or whatever and, and, and uh, that kind of a thing and a, and a, what do they, a washboard or whatever. Um, but, and, and sometimes a choir will come in like the MBL choir or the MLC choir. But, um, so sometimes these choirs do things that are languages. You know, you might have a spiritual or something that shows up or something in some other language. At MVL, they like to do a lot of Latin. And is there room for that in our worship occasionally? Do we need to have Latin in every service? Maybe not. Maybe not. Are there advantages of having more than one style of music in our worship? Um, I'd like to go through some musical styles that are only in the 1993 The Red Hymnal. I'm only talking about that hymnal, and, and I probably have missed a few. Um, in fact, I think I've missed at least three that I could name off the top of my head. But I have uh, eight or nine here. Um, and these are, by the way, these are not the psalms, and these are the hymns, just the numbered hymns. Uh, what do we have in worship? Can you think of a Latin, or, and do you know the difference between Latin and plain song and Gregorian chant? Maybe you don't. Um, but a classic Latin plain song. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Can you imagine a, a, a 60 monks singing that way? Um, up until the time when Gregory, the, was it the sixth, came up with his style and said everybody should sing this now. But of the Father's love begotten. That's Gregorian chant. Okay, a little different, but we sing those, don't we? And we sing them as if they're hymns because they're, they've, they've been arranged as hymns. A lot of that got done by the organist at Grace, Milwaukee. Anybody know Alfred Bladel? Um, uh, marvelous musician. Um, then, then there's, what's the difference between Baroque and Classical? A little bit. And uh, also, it's just earlier. Uh, I mean, Classical doesn't really show up until about the time of Wolfie, of Mozart, Wolfie, like we went to school together, you know. But, 
Um, but Baroque, so those great, some of those great Lutheran composers of old, um, like uh, Johann Gerhardt and so forth, and uh, Nicholas Selnicker, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, some of our best Holy Week, you know, Jesus I Will Ponder Now, that's Baroque, okay? Then there are chorales. That's the standard music of church music of Luther. So a chorale. We also, as kids, sang chorales a different way. Um, row, row, row your boat is a chorale. Why? Because you can sing a line and then, and then somebody can start after you and chase each other around. That's also, in a, in a, in a manner of speaking, a definition of a chorale. Okay. By the way, about many chorales in the hymnal, you can also exchange their tune for something like, is it Yellow Rose of Texas? Or whatever it is. Um, then true classical music, mainly three composers, right? Bach. He's a little late. Um, but the, the, the true classical composer is Handel. George Frederick Handel. Um, uh, but Bach and uh, um, uh, Mozart. Would be would be the other true true classical composer, and then you begin to get into some other things because Beethoven kind of changed everything. So Beethoven is almost I guess late classical, but yeah. But you're are are you, are you aware? Handel, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, those are all Lutherans. Handel at least nominally Lutheran, you know, by name, although he went to England, um, but as a child. Then we go to another, another four. There probably should be more than that here. But classical carol, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Then different styles of folk music are in our hymnal. How many of our, of our, of our hymns are labeled um, Jewish folk song, Danish folk song, Swedish folk song? And you've got this kind of stuff. You know, um, you know, children of the heavenly Father, and behold a host and glorious, glorious in majesty. Da 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 da. da. Hams the beer refreshing. No, it's, it's not. A, anyway, that's kind of the sorry. Um, spirituals. Go tell on the mountain. There is a balm in Gilead. Others. There are others. Amazing Grace is probably going back to, like, uh, maybe almost modern, but it's it's late classical. Maybe in the in the in the maybe we should call that just a hymn. Like I said, there are some categories I may have missed here. But modern, what's the most? What are some of the most recent hymns in the hymnal written? Apart from like Professor Tiefel has you know has one and so forth. But I was. Silent Night is pretty new. Well, written for guitar, you know, a hundred and some years ago. Onward Christian Soldiers. Um, some of those. That's Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan. But, uh, and I'm sure I missed a couple, but uh, there, there is a variety of, you know, in, right in our hymnal so that you can, you can make different choices and have things done, you know, different ways. And then when you get to the modern era, 
And uh, there, there's, a, there's a pretty lively debate about what counts as contemporary because some pure contemporary musicians don't like pieces written in the classical style. You know, it, can a contemporary piece of music be written for pipe organ? You know, some people would say, well, does it, does it, some people might argue with that and, and say it doesn't sound contemporary to them and so forth. Um, when we started contemporary here at St. Paul's 19 years ago, 20 years ago, um, our first regular contemporary group had two lead guitars, a bass on, on, on drums. And uh, the wife of the drummer was our singer. Um, it was loud. It was very electric, um, electronic, I should say. Um, and it was, and it was, for many people, hard to be hard to figure out that that was worshipful. worshipful. Um, they went on. That group went on to become Corbin Creek, and went on to the seminary, um, and had some changes in lineup and so forth. But when they were so freshmen or sophomores here at MLC is when, when that started and they, were, they played here in our worship. Yeah. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.